Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. You're listening to the Horse of the Mark Steiner Show here and to Soundbites, produced right here in Baltimore, out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. That's the Joker by the Steve Miller Band. Uh, Lonnie Turner of Steve Miller Band was born on this day in 1947. Reminding you that the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From school funding to testing, you can learn about the important issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org. Or uh, you can click on SteinerShow.org and click on their banner, the Maryland State Education Association. And yes, that's Steve Miller. I'm Mark Steiner. And we are welcoming you to Soundbites. And this first part of Soundbites, we're going to meet some uh, young farmers from the city of Baltimore uh, and what they're doing and why they're doing it and where they come from and what they think the future might be. It's a good segue, for I think, from our conversation on Afrofuturism and sci-fi and where the farmers may be taking us. So we're about to find out. So once again, in our studio, Sasha Jones is with us. She's the food justice consultant for the Park Heights Community Health Alliance. She also manages the AFIA Community Teaching Garden Park in Park Heights. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as I say often, that Park Heights is this new, to me, national model of what a urban farm can be in terms of feeding a community and changing the nature of a community. And it's good to have you back in the studio, Sasha. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everybody. And Isabella Trishi is with us. She is here in studio, project manager for the White Lock Community Farm. Good to visit, meet you, Isabel. Have you in the studio? Thank you. Uh, Charlotte Kennison is with us. She's a current Open Society Institute fellow, partnering with Paul's Place and working on the community-led interventions to address food accessibility in Pigtown, uh, a neighborhood who they tried to change the name, but they couldn't get that done, which is a good thing. Charlotte, welcome to the studio. Good to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. Whenever people with money move in, they want to change the name, but I can't have that. <laughs> <laughs> it's Big Town. And Walker <laughs> Marsh is with us and, uh, because it has its own food history. That's why they call it yeah, Big Town, right? Yeah, it does. Right. Walker Marsh is with us, the founder and owner of the Flower Factory, who joined us for that panel a few weeks back. Good to have you in the studio, Walker. Yeah, man. It's nice to be back. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can send us emails at talk at steinershow.org. Tweet me at Mark Steiner. Log on to our Facebook pages. 410-319-8888 is the number to join this conversation. So just, you know, where to take this conversation. I was thinking a lot about this as we were talking about having you all on. And I think it's important kind of maybe to kind of explore what brings people to farming, especially what brings people to farming within city limits and why that is. Sasha. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. This is a long, but I'll make it a short story. Because you went to Morgan, right? No, I went to Spelman. You went to Spelman. Okay, right, right. I knew it was an HBCU. I forgot which one it was. Right, right, right. Number one HBCU, big ups to Spelman. Look out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No shade (laughs) at all. But anyway, um, my food story, how I came to urban agriculture is it has many facets. One of them is my personal family history. Um, I'm come from a family of farmers. I didn't know that until I got, you know, I came older and I started doing it myself. But uh, my family lives currently in Fitzgerald, Georgia, where they have a like a hundred acre farm and they make Dang. they grow peanuts and lima beans and all wow. these things Dang. that you grow in Georgia. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, all the things I would love to grow here, but. Um, in school that you mentioned it, I uh, studied international studies and my concentration was sustainable development. And so I did my research on sustainable agriculture as a means to development. And um, my case studies were on urban farms in Atlanta. And so when it came time for me to choose a career and do what I wanted to do, I thought about the foreign service and I said, oh, you know, I can go to Lesotho and, um, you know, (laughs) shape there. That would be great. I might still do that. Um, You know, and shape their agricultural systems and bring people in, but then I could go back home to Baltimore where, you know, my family was dying of all types of cancers and having food-related diseases. Like, my family is the quintessential. If you eat poorly, if you do bad things, you are going to have some health issues. And so for me, it's kind of a full-circle story um, of loving food from a very young age, having it in my, my DNA, so to speak, my cellular memory, and then also studying it from a development perspective and using it as a, um, as a means to development in er- urban areas. And that's what we're doing in Park Heights, really bringing people in to lift them up through food and agriculture. That's an exciting story, I think, what you all are doing there. And Isabel? Yeah, um, my background is a little less academic and more uh, rooted in community organization. And um, I guess I started working with an after-school program in Minneapolis that was uh, 
focused on nutritional recipes and having kids farm in their neighborhoods and then also, um, you know, working together, developing recipes together, cooking together, eating together, um, and building kind of conversational and social skills. Um, so that, that organization in Minneapolis is just, like, so successful, like, such a successful model. Uh, and then when I moved back to Baltimore, I heard about the opening at Whitelock Community Farm um, for an assistant farm manager position. And, of course, I was interested in that because I knew that it was um, gardening-based, but also, like, directly within a community, with, like, in the middle, in the heart of a neighborhood. Um, and so I've been working with my coworker there to kind of put some more educational pieces into place. Um, we've been partnering with the elementary school and different community organizations in the neighborhood um, to put together some more community-based learning uh, opportunities, I guess. Charlotte. Yeah, my story, it's interesting. My story has a lot of touch points with both of these ladies. But <laughs> I, So I'm originally from New Hampshire and also found out later on in life that I come from a family of farmers, but that kind of history and information was lost in a couple of generations of people who thought a nine to five was better than working their land or that was more prestigious or, you know, whatever leads people away from the farm. Um, and I, after college, I also studied international development um, mm. and I joined the Peace Corps and went to Guatemala and lived in a really rural agricultural community that was one of the poorest towns in the country of Guatemala, which is one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, but the people that I lived among had really abundant access to great food because they grew it in their backyards. Um, and then I moved back to Baltimore City to go to graduate school, moved to a neighborhood called Pigtown, and discovered that there was nowhere in my neighborhood where I could walk and get something healthy to eat. Um, and so started thinking about the implications of, of what it meant to not have food in your neighborhood and what that meant in terms of our health and our social well-being. And, and as I was thinking about those things, met some other neighbors who were interested in kind of talking and thinking and addressing that issue, and we formed a food justice group called Pigtown Food for Thought, and we've been working for almost four years in the Pigtown neighborhood to address food and access. You have a farm there? We, we have a small community garden, and we're starting a second community garden. We kind of work on this model of really small pocket spaces that neighbors can really love and work together. Um, so we don't grow on a production scale. We have no plans to be selling our produce. We grow for each other. That's an important point. We'll get to that as well. Walker Marsh. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's cool to hear everybody's story because I, I didn't even know you guys' story like that. That's <laughs> really cool. Um, I guess for me, I, I come from like a really more like a service-oriented background. Um, I didn't really go to school for any of this. I didn't even know that they did like degrees on like, you know, urban agriculture and agriculture, stuff like that. Um, I started, you know, I went to college at Virginia State University and uh I ended up failing out of college. I was doing engineering, and I was really into, like, you know, car design and stuff like that. And once I failed out of college, um, I was kind of, like, figuring out where I wanted to go with myself. And it took me a, a while to actually find a job. And I was always interested in, like, energy conservation. So I started working at this uh, nonprofit called Civic Works, and uh, I was doing work at uh, Project Lightbulb. And, uh, you know, it was, it was focused on weather home weatherizations and saving energy and, you know, teaching people about conserving energy. And I was really into that. And, you know, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, like, what I was really passionate about. So um, I went and did some other work. And then I heard about, you know, Real Food Farm because working with Civic Works, Real Food Farm is a program underneath of Civic Works' uh, bigger organization. And uh, they had an opening. And I was like, you know, I never thought about farming before. And, you know, now that I think about it now, I I do have some family that, you know, farms. But it was no real connection between me and that family. Like, I, I didn't really have experience growing up farming and hearing stories about farming. I, I went down the eastern shore, seen farms, and was like, <laughs> oh, that's cool. You know, that looks <laughs> nice and stuff. But, you know, I, I never thought about going out there and farming. But then I saw they had this job opening, so I started working at Roku Farm and fell in love with it and started to learn about uh, food access issues and food inequalities. And I was just like, man, these are like real issues that are like right around the corner from where I'm at. And it's just like, you know, I, it's just ridiculous. Cause you know, I mean, growing up in Baltimore, you, you see the stuff and you see that there's a lot of uh, food inequalities and you know, the access to good food is just like, it's like ridiculous. Cause it's, there's no access to good food, you know, honestly. And, uh, you know, it's it's just difficult. So that's how I got into it, just, yeah, falling. So I'm, what do your families think about y'all being farmers? 
<laughs> they, they tease you in a loving way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you know, every you know, here come Miss Sealy, or you know, and that's 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 one of the things that I think a lot of young people, particularly people of color, are averse to going into agriculture and just outdoor um, employment opportunities in general because of that connection with our slave history and yeah. people just being completely averse to going back to something that they think you know is demeaning or menial, you know, or not that's important. Great. Interesting. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. they make those types of jokes, but at the same time, when you come around with fresh collard greens, they yeah. want to take them. Yes, <laughs> yes. Bring some, like, cucumbers to the barbecue. Exactly. They'd be like, oh, okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> in- that is interesting. That's an interesting point to, to explore about that, what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. Your parents think you – what do they think about – my parents love it, uh, or at least love the idea of it, but I definitely do get the occasional email of the articles that come out that are like, hmm, from my mom about, um, you know, New York Times articles about you can't make it as a farmer these days, or like small-scale farming is absolutely going to fail. So they're definitely concerned, but interested, and I think deep down love it. Well, this is why we paid your college tuition. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think my parents love it as well. My mom has gotten herself on the U.S. Department of Agriculture email list and is constantly forwarding me things that she finds from that. They really have no relation with what I'm doing at all. (laughs) But it it shows to me that she's interested in what I'm doing and trying to find points to connect with me on it. So, you know, I'm uh, as as the things you just said here, what your mother just said, she sent to you, Isabel. um, It makes you think, what do you think about your, your future? and what the viability of your life is as a farmer in a city, you know, and, and, you know, and, and where that takes you. Because you all, you know, I have no idea how you all, you all in your 20s, right? Yeah, Most yeah. Right? yeah. Right? <laughs> so, um, and, and so, so I'm, I'm curious where you think this goes, both in terms of your work that you're doing now, uh, what you read and think about in terms of the difficulties of making it as a farmer no matter where you're farming in this world, especially on a small scale, mm-hmm. I mean, so where do you think this goes? Where do you think this urban world of farming goes beyond all the hype of let's turn some of the these these empty plots of land into places well, of food? Where I hope it goes is us increasing, you know, our collectiveness and cooperation in our work, you know. Um, like I, we white lock we're right down the street from one another but we don't partner or anything currently you know and that's something that we can change um but you are literally like a seven minute five minute literally yeah, on drive. the other side on right. one side of the park, the park, park. Right. is me the other side is hers you know like right. um so that's something small that we can change this year but you know park heights is ripe you know for creating a food economy a food shed of sorts which i would like to see i would like um, for us to take the cooperative business model and apply that to farming and have us specialize um, our crops and use that to aggregate and to get, you know, overturn the system. And that's my hmm. radical and idealist view. Let me probe that. Before we go to the other uh, panelists, I'm going to probe that. So what does that, what does that mean, that, that you think it's ripe uh, for being this, this place where food can be grown and, and as a co-op. What is it, what's, what's your vision about that? Well, I mean, we have an abundance of vacant lots. We have an abundance of abandoned homes, and we have an abundance of people out of work. Um, so we have a really good, and we have a heat island because we're all on top of one another. So we, <laughs> so we have a really good opportunity to use all of those what look like disparities and transform them into something that can put all those people to work, can feed them, um, can help overturn some of those health inequities that we have um, in Park Heights and in Baltimore in general. We're not unique. Um, I think that there are several pockets around the city that. Um, that are ripe for development, and I think that it's up to us, the people who live and work there, to kind of shape, excuse me, to shape that development. And I think food is an awesome tool. One of the reasons that I got into food in the first place is because it touches every sector of the economy. You know, it affects health, it affects geography, it affects, you know, bottom line. If you look at the stock market today, like the biggest trading things are like pork bellies and chickens, you know, and people don't people don't look at it that way. We're always looking at Apple and Disney stock. But if you look at the commodity stocks, you know, those are being traded every day. So it's a it's a huge part of our economy that we are not tapped into on a day-to-day basis outside of going to our local grocery store and picking up what we want for dinner or maybe for the week and coming back home and cooking it. But what if we were the grocery store? What if I could walk around the corner and, you know, pick up my onions for the day and walk around the other corner and pick up some garlic and, you know, 
Um, and using that, using the whole neighborhood, like on our farms, I'm sure a lot of us, we use crop rotation. Like we won't grow something in the same space. What if that was for the whole community? So our mm. crop rotation plan would be on lot A at the corner of Pimlico Road and Quantico, we're growing tomatoes this year. And then crop B at the corner of, you know, so using that and bringing people into the fold. Um, and that is a goal that maybe 20 years away, maybe five years away, but that's my vision. I'm putting it out there. Somebody like take it. hold of like it. it. <laughs> well, that's interesting. So what about the other visions at the table? Go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, so picked up for thought things on a bit of a smaller scale, and I think what we're thinking about is not, I love what Sasha's saying about putting people back to work, and I think that that's crucial. What we're focusing on is providing a social space for people to interact with each other, to begin to care about their neighbors, and to learn a little bit about food cultivation. So to grow tomatoes, but on a really small scale, but mm-hmm. with your neighbors, so that you, I mean, I think one of the things that I felt when I moved to Baltimore City was loneliness. I'd never lived in a city before. I was in this place where I felt really isolated. I didn't know any of my neighbors, and then I started growing food with them, and that totally changed the way I saw my neighborhood. I became—I um, began to love my neighborhood, and I had really close friends there and started to really care about Pigtown. And I think that that's what community gu- gardens can provide for people is a social space to to bring people out of their houses and to interact with each other, to care about their neighborhoods, and to start make, making small changes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and your model, Walker, in some ways is a little different because you're talking about building a business that with, with Walker Marsh as the owner of this business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm right? like really trying to promote this like green entrepreneurship. I've been calling it that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I agree a lot with uh, what Sasha was saying. Like, we do need to get people out here working and doing this type of work, you know, because that's, that's how you, you know, for me, I look at it more or less like for making, getting these individuals to be able to make some money that they can live the lifestyle that they are able to have like a healthy, you know, food and, and be able to go to Trader Joe's and buy, you know, whatever they want. So, you know, I think that um, I'm trying to promote entrepreneurship just in, in a whole and for people to go back to working with the land and uh, it just like understand what it what it is, because I think like we really lost that, you know, like people don't work with the land. You know, you I, when I was working at Real Food Farm, you know, you have the high schoolers and middle school kids come out and they're walking in the dirt and they like they so worried about getting their shoes dirty. Like, why are you worried about getting your <laughs> shoes dirty? Like, that don't... Shoes are nothing. Like, you can buy a new pair of shoes, you know what I'm saying? But I don't, it just... People just need to get back to work with the land and, and understanding its value and seeing that, you know, there is something that could come from this. Like, I know I, I, I get scared all the time. Like, I'm not going to make enough money, you know, doing this stuff because, honestly, it's not that much money in it, you know? It, it is difficult for farmers because it... You know, it's, it's it's just difficult when you're selling, you know, vegetables and these fruits and, you know, you got to sell a certain amount of mo- a certain amount of it to be making that, you know, money back that you put into it. Because there's a lot of money that goes into farming and it's hard to get that money back if you're not selling it and doing a lot. So, you know, it is all it really takes is like for that education for people to understand, like, why am I buying this, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, I see like entrepreneurship, I also see education, I really want to promote to people why they're, why they're doing it, why we should be eating healthy, because I'm coming from like, more of a background that's, I'm more focused on trying to get at people that don't really understand any of this stuff, because that's that's where I come from, I, you know, I wasn't knee deep in this stuff a day mm-hmm. ago. You know what I'm saying? I was still just getting my feet wet and still learning about it. And I see that there are a lot of other people that are, you know, they don't know anything about this stuff. Like, there's people that don't even know about the Mark Steiner show. You know what I'm saying? And that's that's ridiculous, you know, because this is an awesome show. Nothing, you, know, <laughs> but, you know, I just... Well, thank you, but... Yeah, yeah, but there's, there's a lot of folks out there, and I'm, I'm really trying to grab their attention, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So. Yeah, gra- um, off of all of those things, I think we're also interested in and making those vacant spaces productive again, both in terms of building an economy and rebuilding social spaces. I know at Whitelock, um, the vacant lots that we're working on used to be the business corridor of that neighborhood, and that was where people would be interacting all the time. And I'm sure that's where a community was built, right? Like the ways to talk to one another, the ways of like, I don't know, even just like building neighborly, whatever, neighbor, (laughs) building your neighborhood. Um, And so then it sat vacant for many years, and a lot of people kind of lost that. And kids growing up, they lost that. So... I think having the space uh, both to just, like, say hi to people, see how they're doing, but also an educational space. We have um, 
you know, a farm club with the elementary school nearby or whether it be like workshops with people in the neighborhood, um, just space that people can come learn from each other, also share those ide- their ideas on what they'd want to learn and see if we can kind of build workshops around that. Um, what else? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, mean, all, all, I mean, all of you have, have worked, live in, worked in neighborhoods that are, whether it's White Lock, which I remember very well growing up, mm-hmm. and I remember all the stores in the corner on White Lock, and I re- remember it kind of like Park Heights kind of falling into this kind of deserted neighborhood, stores leaving, becoming a drug-riddled neighborhood, lots of violence happening in the streets. Big Town, too, and it was like that as well. That, that you know, that, and that this is... The, the idea of uh, coming into living in neighborhoods where um, transforming community is part, part of what you're trying to do here via getting your hands in the dirt. And mm-hmm. So how do people respond to you? How do people in your communities respond to the work you're doing, do you think? I think people love it. Um, the space that we created our first garden in, is, it's actually interesting to hear you talk about um, changing so the neighborhood being productive and then falling into kind of a state of decay and then um, our space that we turned into a garden used to be a sub shop and I found that out after we'd built it. It was a trash heap when we found it and we hauled out, I don't know, probably two tons of trash to make it a garden and someone as we were kind of regenerating the space came and said oh this is where I used to come and buy subs when I was a kid. So I love this idea that it was a space that provided food for the neighborhood that fell into decay that then we were providing food for the neighborhood again. But in that first growing season... It's not a cheese stick, though. No, it's not a cheese stick. In that first growing season, I was uh, harvesting some eggplants, and my neighbor, Miss Becky, walked by, and I said, hey, Miss Becky, do you, would you like an eggplant? And I handed it to her. And she took a few steps away and then turned around and said, you know, I've never seen food growing in this neighborhood. And that, to me, was an aha moment that, like... Kids who grow up in Baltimore City neighborhoods maybe never know that food comes from the ground. They maybe never get to see it, and they certainly don't get to participate in it. So for us, um, our garden is a place where all of those things can happen. We're going to take a very brief break um, and uh, come right back to this conversation. Join us here. I meant to tell you this. You can join us. We're live, 410-319-8888. Write to us here uh, by email, talk at sinershow.org. But give a holler, 410-319-8888. And we're just talking to young people about why they're farming, what it means for the future. I really want to explore where they think it will take us in the next five years in this this city and what it could really look like uh, in a very serious way. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Buddy Holly and the Crickets, recorded on this day in 1957. 1957. Nobody in this room remembers that at all. But welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome back to Soundbites here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And I want to remind you, I ask you all if you're interested in joining, being part of a focus group, and donating two hours of your time to help us make our series Soundbites even better. Uh, We'll provide a meal and a chance to meet our staff and other Steiner Show listeners. Uh, either on March the 19th, 7 to 9 p.m. We want to invite you to join us, be part of that uh, part of that focus group. It's really important to the future of this program and have some good food and a really interesting evening. You can have get more information by uh, emailing Valerie Williams at Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E, Valerie, Valerie at SteinerShow.org. Uh, and please uh, take part in, uh, in that focus group for us here on Soundbites and help us make this an even better program. So we're here with Walker Marsh, Isabel Atrigian. I said that right, didn't I? Close enough. <laughs> no, I didn't say it right. That means, though, no, you didn't say it right. Antrigian. <laughs> Antrigian, excuse yes. me. Antrigian. Isabel Antrigian, Charlotte Kennison, and Sasha Jones. Uh, and you all are 410 So I'm really, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of uh, what we talked about last hour. Um, and I kept thinking about the, the Afrofuturism and, and, and kind of the futuristic look of the world. And I like to play with that game for a minute with you all. <laughs> this would be fun. You know, <laughs> and, and play this game of, of what you think it could look like in 10 years. I mean, you guys will just all be in your 30s. 
uh, plenty of time and energy left to transform the world. Uh, and I'm, so I'm curious what you think it could look like. If you were painting a vision of this city and what the land could produce and what it could mean for transforming uh, this community. So how do, you, how do you view that? And how do you and just kind of fantasize? But to me, fantasy is just the step before reality, you know? Yeah, I mean, you got to right? visualize it and it will manifest and right. happen. Right. So. Actually, I was listening to the last sure. segment uh, on my way over here. And I started writing a science fiction novel based on <laughs> based on the adventures of Grow Girl in my mind. Um, Grow Girl, we, I love that. We play with this idea of Grow Girl uh, at my in my office in Park Heights, and it's just it's a, it's a young lady who goes around spreading you know the joys and learnings of um, of growing food in urban areas and so Joppy, Johnny Appleseed becomes a black woman exactly <laughs> exactly um, she's a young cool, black woman but um in I mean Baltimore is a neighborhood city and so again the climate here is just so ripe for so much goodness which is why there's a lot of greatness happening right now um, and I think what the future looks like is for us picking up uh, Walker's mission to bring more people into the fold um, for the people who live here who have lived here to not be left out of this new wave of um, of greatness in all facets, arts, education, food, health, um, community development, safe spaces, all of these things are happening um, and they're being funded. And so just making sure that the folks who have lived here tap into that um, and so in Park Heights, to me, it looks like the, the people who are either renting or owning or who are renting, you know, that they are able to own and putting our policies toward that. Um, again, the food shed, it's its my baby in my mind, and I want that to happen. Um, going When you drive around Baltimore, you see, like, old theaters in the neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. Every, every, growing up, every neighborhood had its own movie theater growing exactly. up. Exactly. Oh, wow. Exactly. Right. And so you when, you when the whole idea of the mall and the strip mall and the suburbs that grew around it comes mm-hmm. in, you know, these neighborhood-based things go to this one area that has everything, you know, and so we're shipping people out of the neighborhood and devaluing it. So if we could just, little by little, just bring resources back, and that's the move in development, right? Right now, these mixed use, multi you know, multi use spaces, mixed age, like this is the new wave. But doing that with the interest of the people in mind and the you know the Afia Community Teaching Garden where I work, that's our you know that is our mantra to grow the things that people in the neighborhood already eat. You know, we're not going to grow things that while they may be super nutritious or while they may be super cool and awesome and they're pretty, you know, if the people in the neighborhood are not going to utilize them, then we don't grow it. And so if we could take that idea and put it into, you know, our lens of development and particularly agricultural development in Baltimore City, you know, how much greater could we be? So not necessarily growing food that's cost prohibitive or only for our um, for our niche restaurants that are awesome and delicious, but um, growing food for the local carryout, like, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is another idea. I'll give it to the universe. Um, oh, just growing lettuce, tomatoes, and onions in a hoop house all year round and selling it to your local carryout. You know, yeah. start where people are and scale it up as their their interest grows. So before we go, people are calling in when we get to their phone calls, but Isabella and Trishan, <laughs> tell us about a bit about your kind of vision of where, well, what, do you, where do you think this could go? I love everything that you just said about your vision, um, and I hope that we are moving in that direction. Um, I also would add to that, <clears throat> excuse me, that... I have to think about all these kids that are involved in these programs that we're running right now, and I think that there's going to be like a fundamental shift in their understanding of food and their their preferences for food, which is amazing, right? Like we have this uh, farm club with the local elementary school, and to watch the kids like have grown their own produce and then be like really proud of it, you know, we have this this mobile market that they were running, and one of the kids was just like so proud about the scallions he was growing, and I'm like, (laughs) you are eight years old and so happy about scallions, like that that's amazing, right? Like if kids are slowly transitioning into being aware of how their food is grown and where it's coming from and like expecting that to be the case, then I think that's really great. Um, Also, there's a lot of people who come up to Whitelock and ask about their own backyard gardens that they're doing. So I think there are a lot of people in the neighborhoods that are doing their own farming or their own like small scale gardening. And I think that there's these larger, larger small scale uh, (laughs) farms are kind of like going to be a hub of knowledge of of farm farming techniques and also like just any sort of... um, 
I don't know, like how, how to be growing effectively. And people can come to that and kind of learn for their own small, smaller scale backyard gardening. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some quick thoughts there before we hit the phones. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with Isabel. I think, like, if I can envision 10 years down the road, I mean, I can see, like, for me, I, I see more, like, the landscape changing. Like, there's a guy out in Cali. I forget what his name is. I'm mad. But he does a program out there where they just, like, take plots and, like, grow on, like, median strips uh-huh. and stuff like that. And I can see, like, you know, people taking over that. Like, you know, where we have, like, you know, just regular stuff, you know, where you're going down the street, you see some grasses, like, we might, I could see that being, like, you know, tomato trellises and stuff like right. that, you know. And it's just, like, you know, there's so many various spaces across the city where you can grow, and it's not an inconvenience to anybody because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, don't take our spot, you know, that's where, blah, 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 you know, whatever. You know, people <laughs> feel however they want to. But, um, you know, there are, there are various places that you could grow from, and I could, I just see, like, the landscape changing. Like, you know. People don't realize you can actually raise chickens in Baltimore. You, you can't yeah. yeah. and you can raise chickens, right? Yeah, yeah. And rabbits and beans. <laughs> right, right. What were we going to say? Um, I was just adding that you also can have goats, but I would um, add to what Walker said. I think I have seen the landscape in Pigtown change just in the three years that we've been there. Um, when we started our little garden, there were lots of lots that were owned by the city and up for adopting. And when we went to adopt the lot that we're now turning into a larger garden this year, we discovered that there are hardly any lots left in Pigtown because people are growing food. People have adopted little lots wow. and turned them into little pocket parks or places where they're growing food. So I think, it, yeah, we're well on that path to changing the landscape of Baltimore. That's very exciting. I think that there should be a chicken farm, goat farm. Yeah. I agree. A lot of yeah. that, that, that stuff should exist mm-hmm. in this in the city. Yeah. yeah you absolutely. just can't get a rooster. That's the only issue. Well, you, yeah. can't, you can't have a rooster. We yeah. can change the law. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You definitely <laughs> can change the law. Yes. You know, 410 Got to change that law. 410-319-8888. Ilion, you're on the air. Hello? Welcome, Ilion. Ilion. Yes. Uh... I wanted to know if any of the uh, farmers are growing their vegetables free of uh, chemicals. Would that be all of them? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a universal yes? Uh, uh, maybe, sort of. Well, when you're working with community gardens, there's always a fight over. I mean, we've got a lot of older folks in our garden who grew up using chemicals to grow their food. So that's a debate that comes up every year. Um, but we grow uh, 75% organically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we're 100%. Um, and that, that is something that's intentional and that we, you know, we're not budging on. <laughs> Your, your gardens are 100% organic. Yeah, yeah. We no chemicals, no pesticides. We use um, compost. We compost our, like, second vegetables, and um, we use the scraps from the garden to take it back and you well, know, put it back on. Well, one of the things you, you just said a moment ago, Charlotte, I think that is, is uh, kind of uh, a realistic way as well, just in terms of the older people who have been gardening for a long time. I mean, they're used to using whatever it is. I mean, when I first started gardening, when I lived in Windsor Hills, and I grew corn and tomatoes, other stuff in my in my my front lawn was all corn. My, some of my neighbors oh, liked wow. it, some didn't. But <laughs> I shared the corn with them. They got started changing their mind. But 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 then I was using. This was back in the seventies, I guess, late seventies, early eighties. I wasn't even thinking about organic, even though I knew about it. I was just wanting to get my stuff to grow, so right. I put mm-hmm. whatever I needed to in that ground to make it happen. And so, mm-hmm. but people can change. But it takes a while for people to change that and kind of move into organic because organic is harder. Mm-hmm. It's harder to make work, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, I don't think it's... I'm not saying... I'm for organic. I'm yeah, saying yeah, it's not yeah. Like, it's, yeah. It's just more time. You know, it takes more time. And you got to... You just got to learn, you know, different things. Like, you know, just learning how to, you know, use the environment. Like, you know, learn how to have beneficial bugs and, right. and you know, coping with loss, you know, because you're going to lose, you know, you're going to lose whether you use chemicals or not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't think it's like that much harder. Beneficial bugs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we also have to learn to accept that sometimes food might have like a little like cut yeah. in it or it mm-hmm. might grow right. a little funny yeah, it's and it's still right. nutritional and yeah. delicious. So uh, one thing I want to ask you all before we have to move to our next segment, because this is really a fascinating conversation. I'm really happy the four of you are here today. Um, and thanks for that question, Elion, at 410-319-8888. But we're, we are about to produce this series of conversations about the complexities of revitalizing neighborhoods and having urban development and, and how, how we do that. Um, and, you know, we realize stuff about vacant lots and urban gardening. And I wonder how you think that fits into all of this because that's, a, you know, the, where that fits into the future of developing the city and how that's done. 
You know, because they can see speculators who are going to come to all your neighborhoods. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're yeah. already there. They're already yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> they're in Park Heights because they want to. They want. They want people with money to have easier access to the train station. Yeah. Right. And there's lower Park Heights houses or beautiful old yep. houses. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same thing in Pigtown. Same thing. You know, Reservoir Hill's been going through this thing for a long time. We, we live in Sandown and, and Pigtown. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think about this in terms of how this fits in? Well, I think I think the prevalence <laughs> of vacant lots. <laughs> For the people who are there already is completely detrimental to their emotional um, health. And um, and when you have a whole block of people who are emotionally divested from their community, they're not going to fight for it, and they're not even going to want to stay there. So when, you know, they're presented with the opportunity to move to what looks like greener pastures, they will. Um, and then you'll start this cycle again, again of developing a community, and then, you know, it's n- it's no longer sexy or it's, it's no longer... Um, you know, the, the it place to be, and then it goes back into, you know, toil. So if we could stop that system, and um, so I, and I'm, I'm saying all this to say that by developing our vacant lots and, and turning them into green spaces, whether they're for growing food or just hanging out, whether, you know, we have some people up the street from us that play horseshoes, which I just found out about, you know, and I think that's so, super awesome, yeah. you know. <laughs> so we have two comments of listeners. I'm going to jump in. Quick final thoughts here. Um, one is saying that I hope that other young people. Um, like me, hear this and are inspired to start farming and gardening or volunteering with operations that are already ongoing, I feel inspired. There's been a big challenge to Cherry Hill with, urban, with an urban farm oh, there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it's, yeah. and, and Webb Phil writes in, um, is it a collective, is it a collective of Farmers Union in Baltimore where farmers can stay connected? Well, yes, there is. We were just talking about that. I have a friend with plots on Division Street and he had a problem with people stealing some of his harvest. Have you encountered this? But oh, yes, but of course. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's part of that goes with it. It goes yeah. with it. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say within myself that I'm just glad that they're eating it and that, you know, that they like it. And it one, last year someone came through and stole all of our onions, and it was completely oh. sad. Um, <laughs> you know, but someone's eating it, and they're benefiting mm. from it. Um, you were so, nodding your head yes, Isabel? Yeah, sometimes uh, we find that things will be taken by kids in the neighborhood, but then they're just thrown on the ground. So in that case, mm. they're not eating them. But to me, that just means, like, they're curious about the space, and they're, yeah. they're like, interested in something that's going on here and we need to find how to reach them. Right. So yeah. here in the last seconds we're getting flooding in with calls to try to get to a couple of things. Daniel in Pikesville, your thought. Uh, yes, how you doing? Um, sorry about the onions. I'm just uh, calling in. I just want to throw the word permaculture in the mix. I'm catching the last part of this. You might have mentioned it already, but permaculture is about creating edible food forests right. and food ecosystems and it's just a philosophy that really inspires young people to know that they can there's something beyond the system that we're in. So there's like a whole new system. So I'm just wondering, do you guys have classes? Do you guys bring that or an instructor in to talk about that stuff? Um, What do you do with permaculture? Go ahead. Yeah. We don't currently. Um, I think that's something that we'd be interested in pursuing or like having a workshop. Um, I know that the... There are workshops put on sometimes by the Farm Alliance of Baltimore, speaking of the... Which is the group you're talking about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Also, Real Food Farm puts on Mm. a series of workshops sometimes. So I know that that is being discussed, but not necessarily like at every specific farm within those neighborhoods. There is a a fellow, Ulysses Archie, at Thomas Jefferson Elementary School, um, who is actively... um, cultivating permaculturists through the young people at Thomas Jefferson. And then there are courses around um, permaculture throughout Baltimore and um, as far as Northern Virginia. I think they just did a workshop. If it didn't happen already, it's just coming up, and it might be the Northern Virginia, like Farm Alliance or something like that. But the conversation is definitely on the table, and it's um, it's great. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Let's see what Janet in Baltimore has to ask. Janet, you're on the air. Hi, everyone. Hi. I was calling because I was just wondering with all of the history that Baltimore has of uh, toxic waste embedded in the places that we live, lead paint, and how is it that you all can ensure that the area that you are working for, your farm plots and your mm. farmland, is not contaminated or, the contem- you know, or how do you remediate the contamination? That's my question. Yeah. Collect- question. Uh, I, I keep tests. talking. Yeah, I was going to say. How do, how do you all take yeah. care of that? It, I mean, with the city, I mean, they're, they're, you are likely going to run into those contaminants. But there has been research that shows that, you know, the lead levels that you'll find that is translated from the soil into the actual fruit that you're eating or into mm-hmm. the plant is not very dangerous to the person consuming it. It's more dangerous to the farmer because this, the contaminants are in the soil and 
you know, the person that's working with the soil has the most exposure to that. So the farmer, that's more of a question to the farmer than the actual consumer. That's just like the farmer needs to, you know, not take the soil into the house, you know, make sure it takes the shoes off and, you know, before you go into the house. But that, it, it affects more of the farmer than it does the consumer, honestly. That being said, you can you could plan to plant flowers in the areas that maybe are contaminated, or yeah. s- certain crops are better to grow. Yeah, pull it to up. help. Yeah, pull it up. And to remediate the soil, someone gave me this tip to grow leafy green vegetables like spinach mm-hmm. because they sequester the um, the heavy metals that are in the soil. So if you just spend one season um, growing, just it's a what is a sacrifice crop? Just just oh, you yeah, know, just yeah, grow yeah. spinach or collards or whatever. Just one season and to, um and puck it up, and you'll have sequestered most of it, and then do a soil test again and see where you are. So you're about. It's, it's almost time to turn the soil over, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Close. Yeah. If the cold will go away. Yeah. yeah. Once the ground's not frozen and everything, you know. Huh? So this is exciting. I mean, I mean, I'd like to. I'm looking forward to coming back to Park Heights, and I'm looking forward to. Uh, Getting back again. It's been a couple of years since we've been out to see what you all are doing. Yeah, come on uh, by. I want to definitely want to see what's happening over over, there, over in your area in Whitelock, and not been down to Picktown and seen your piece. Come visit us. Yeah. I've not seen your farm either. Yeah, yeah, man. I meant y'all say Picktown. Yeah, we gotta go over to Broadway East, man. You know, it's about to be some things over Broadway East popping, man. We're about to be doing some things. Well, this so, is yeah, good. <laughs> this is there's, there's a lot happening. I think that we can push this energy the way we're doing, and people are obviously from the phone calls and emails interested in this. Um, and I think that it's great to have the four of you here in the studio. You are doing great work, and I admire the four of you. I'm glad you all came in today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for having you, us. So Walker awesome. Marsh, founder and owner of the, of the, Flo- the, the Flower, Flower Factory. Factory. Yeah. Uh, Isabel Artesian, who, Antesian, who is project manager of the Whitelock Farm, a community farm. Charlie Keniston, who is an OSI fellow working in Picktown, who adjusts food accessibility. Sasha Jones, who is a food justice consultant at Park Heights Community Health Alliance and manages their farm. Good to have you all here. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to take a very brief break and come right back. Don't go away. Shell said that it weighs 10 pounds. Oh, it's a beautiful catch, lady, a magnificent gun. Six dollars, it's a material, lady, you'll buy it. Get catch, get cry, the money, I don't want to live by it. I got to be brave, for real balabatis. Goodbye, little chickens, don't forget to say Kaddish. I can go where the wild goose goes, cause I must go where the shekhet goes. I'll be up gizals, I'll be in a top. I'm a cavern butcher, I'm stinking from cob. Welcome back, this is Mark Steiner, and uh, that's the Dance of the Wild Goose by Mickey Katz. And uh, it's an appropriate opening for this conversation here. Evan Serpik, editor of the Baltimore City Paper, uh, wrote a piece, uh, the City Paper, that fit right into the soundbite. So he's joining us here. And that piece is The Search for Baltimore's Best Matzo Ball Soup Begins and Ends at Home. And speaking of home, we're also joined by Myra Serpik, who is a retired social worker and the mother of Evan Serpik, who alleges she makes the best matzo ball soup in Baltimore. <laughs> Evan and Myra, welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Good to have you, Evan. So go ahead. Evan, so what? Get the music back on. My mom's <laughs> dancing in the studio. <laughs> we'll start it. We'll start it again. Okay. <laughs> so, so this article, the search for the best matzo ball soup. You went everywhere around Baltimore, did you? I tried. Yeah, I tried to go back to a lot of places I haven't been in a while in search for anything that could match, you know, my mom's soup. <laughs> and not, not surprisingly, I couldn't find it. You couldn't find it anywhere. Not anywhere. No, there are good soups. I mean, really different ones. Um, the Atman soup is really good, but um, there's something about, you know, mom's soup. And I don't think it's just me. I mean, I don't know if anybody's going to believe me on that, but um, there's a certain flavor that she gets that I haven't been able to find anywhere else. And what is that, Myra? 
How do you make the... <laughs> <laughs> I, I was telling someone the secret is out. It comes from the packet of seasoning comes from a, uh, a box. So, <laughs> You're not supposed to say I, that. <laughs> I know. I know. I was, I was devastated when it came, when it appeared. No, when I found out that she, that, you know, I, I grew up eating the Swansville soup and it was just my favorite thing, you know, Passover became a favorite holiday just because of the soup. And I remember when I was, you know, however old I was, 10, 11, and I saw her making it from a box, I was shocked. <laughs> so, I, so I started looking into it and seeing what made it so much better. And then I realized what she does do, and she's modest, so she doesn't talk about it, but she spends a lot of time on the stock. So she makes, you know, she boils a chicken, she boils onions and carrots and, um, spend several hours on the stock and then you know the matzo balls when they're in they are from a box but they seem to soak up the stock and get just a ton more flavor than the others do so i think that my my guess is that that's the secret i mean i think there has to be a big piece of it but then there's a secret to how you make they argue how to make the best matzo ball i mean mm-hmm. and and how that is even started because matzo ball is made before you put it in the soup right right yes so yes. as always, my this argument over what makes a matzo ball. I had the, and 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 <laughs> what makes it. <laughs> well, I think what may make it a little bit tastier is that some people make them in water, but I make them in the broth in the stock. Uh-huh. So I think that adds to the flavor. And other than that, it's very basic ingredients. You know, it's matzo meal and seasoning, and you know, it, it's it's a very basic ingredient, but. You know, uh, my mother used to make them and then bake them. And, right, right. Uh, and then they were like, we used to call them cannonballs, and everybody had they to were eat lead. them with them. <laughs> they were lead. <laughs> and you had to use a knife and a fork <laughs> and hope it stayed in the bowl. So, um, <laughs> so they're, you know, we got to work on that. These are softer. What, somebody once uh, was talking to me, and I tried it actually, um, was making matzo balls to make them light is making it with seltzer water. I heard that. Someone gave me that recommendation after the story came out. They said, um, I forgot what the other tips were, but one was use seltzer water instead of water. Um, and there was something else. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. I hadn't tried that before. No, I haven't either. So it's worth looking at. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, with the ones, they, they, they seem to come out really light, you know, really light. I mean, it's not yeah. a knife and fork, and they just kind of melt into <laughs> the soup. So then you, <laughs> that, that, that's... <laughs> So I, I, on, on this journey, I mean, you know, some people use fresh parsley. That's a big piece of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. At the very end, you can add some parsley to give it a little bit more flavor. It was fun to go. So for after in the search, you know, I went down to um, Atman's and Lenny's and then out to SNH, Suburban House, and um, uh, Miller's out in Pikesville. And so it was just interesting to see how different they all were. And, um, and they were all really were, different. They all were really different. Um I had to say, of the four, Atman's really had a really good one. Um, really great um, soup stock, and, and uh, they had these great noodles in there, which I haven't had for years. But they're these kind of thick, almost like udon noodles, and they're kind of chewy, which really, um, you know, traditional matzo ball soup doesn't have noodles because it's on Passover. But right. they really made it um, delicious. And it was cool to be. I love going down on Lombard Street, you know, those what used to be corned beef row, and those places still do it really well. No, I haven't. I haven't had that out. I've only had matzo ball. I see. I've never. I've never really think. I can't think about the last time I've had matzo ball soup in a restaurant. Right. I, you may have them at home. People make it, just eat it, and everybody thinks their matzo ball soup is the best because that's how you grew up. That's what we've had. Yeah. I'm, but it's actually it's perfect for this weather too. Like you know, if you're if you're just going for a walk, like you know, it's not that far from our office. It's perfect to walk across town to Atman's and get a bowl of that soup. That's right. Your office is closer now to. That's right. Yeah. That, that, it used, that it used to be. That's primarily why we moved. That's what I thought. You, 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 just, you just want to be close to a corned beef sandwich. I know how you exactly. are, Evan. That's, That's priority. <laughs> it's gonna be, there could be worse reasons to move. Um, <laughs> but I, so, Myra, you know, I mean, growing up, I think it's true that the, 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 the matzo balls that people make today are not like the grandmother's matzo balls. Uh, no. Which were heavy and leaded. I mean, you 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 make them so they can just be cut and just easily with a spoon, and they just kind of really do melt. Oh yes, and some people don't even eat the broth; they just want uh, the matzo balls. So, right. <laughs> so there's a variety <laughs> there. I was thinking. I was telling Evan about uh, the gefilte fish that my mother used to make, oh, where right. she went down to the fishmonger when it opened in the downtown. Downtown, they right? Were, right, right, and buy the fish uh, right fresh. 
and then grind it at home. So uh, it was it was a major production. So they, they worked a lot harder in those days. Uh, they did, but you know, if you taste the difference, if you taste the difference between a filter fish that's actually made with uh, with the different. Some people make it with rock and pike and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and other fish and do it yourself. It's a, I yes. mean it is I mean the, the stuff they sell you in bottles in the store. I mean that it's that's also it's hard. It's not the it, same. It's not. It's not. It's not. But you have to be willing to put the time in and make <laughs> right. the, the fish stock and all of that. Matzo so. balls don't take so long. No, <laughs> especially <laughs> from the box. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that. I love it. So, Evan, so are you going to search for any other things besides matzo balls in, in the future here? Well, I, I actually, it's funny, in, in doing this, um, I didn't even realize this, but this is the 100th anniversary of Admins. Um, oh, really? Which is kind of incredible. Wow. And uh, they say, they claim to be, and I, I don't have any reason to doubt them, that they're the oldest continuously owned by the founding family deli in America. Um, it's possible. So I've been... I, that's what they say. I, I mean, a lot of the ones, like the, the more famous ones in L.A., I mean, in New York, Katz's and Second Avenue, yeah, yeah, yeah. new owners. So as far as I know, yeah, I think they're right. Um, and, you know, I've been so I've been going back there more and, like, just walking along Lombard and those old spaces. So Weiss's is still there and Lenny's is still there. But um, just imagining, you know, life 100 years ago there is oh, pretty interesting. I, I remember um, life there in the 50s as a kid. Yeah. You know, but what was it like? It was, I'll interview it, you. It was it was like you know going to going down there with my grandfather buying, uh, that's where we bought the chicken for Friday night dinner was down on Lumber Street and you would you know pick out the chicken it would be alive and, and then they would uh, take the chicken in the back they would kill it and they'd bring it out and it would be all no feathers and you take it home and you eat it I mean that was wow. you know, that was a very different uh, it was a different Lumber Street. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I was surprised just to see they they actually they're thriving. I mean, Admins is packed. I had to wait in line every time I went. Oh yeah, yeah. You know. Which is good to see, and you know, people there. Everyone's getting, you know, their corned beef, you know, on rye with mustard and and Dr. Browns, and you know, half sours and everything. It's 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 uh, they're doing really well. It's good to see. Well, here's what we're gonna do. We have to first. I'm I'm gonna I, Myra. I, we have to do something close to pass over here in the show and 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 tr- and and try your matzo balls. Absolutely, <laughs> I'll be glad to provide. Them. That sounds good. My, yeah. The office was disappointed you came empty-handed today. I know. Well, I'm this I thought I was thinking we'd be in the studio. The matzo balls were going to be here with the soup, and we try them. That's fine. So <laughs> next time. Next, next time. time. So Evan Serpik, editor of the Baltimore City Paper, and uh, Myra Serpik, uh, his mom, who makes the best matzo ball soup in Baltimore. Thank you so much for being here on the Mark Steiner Show on Sound Bites. Thanks so much. Thank you all. And thank you all for listening in here. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producers are Cynthia Mavronis and Mark Gunry. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineering intern is Anthony Nichols. Our intern and day in history research producer is Siana Greaves. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. And on our way out of here, it's Hit the Road by Ray Charles. On this day in 1987, Ray Charles won the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Grammys. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends and visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. Mm-hmm.